Hey, you're listening to Featuring Filmmakers, a podcast where we talk to people in the filmmaking industry about their projects and the creative process behind making them. My name is JJ. And I'm Amanda. And this is Featuring Filmmakers. Today, we're talking to Lindsay Hagen, who is currently the head of business development at Gnarly Bay, which is a production company. Um, And she's also a director. She directed this piece that we're going to be discussing today, uh, which is called Fight or Flight. And this is a short form documentary um, based in Colorado around the story of a female pilot who overcame trauma by taking to the sky. Uh, And it's so visually inspiring and the story is incredible so i'm really excited to get into this one it was recently featured in doc nyc film festival um, which is one of the bigger film festivals in the country so we talk about that a little bit too in this episode as always we recommend checking out this episode on the blog so that you can watch the full project and get context into everything that we discuss on this episode well, thank you, Lindsay, for being on the podcast. We're so excited to have you today. Um, recently, we watched your new project, Fight or Flight, which is what we are talking about today, which was absolutely incredible. Um, so good. Both of us, I think, were taken away by it and just very impressed. So excited to dive into it and kind of get a behind-the-scenes look at how it all went down. Listen, here's the deal. I, I watched it the other morning and I was saying to the guys, I, I texted the group. I said, did you guys watch this yet? And they're like, oh, I haven't seen it yet. I was like, oh my gosh, it's so good. Aww. I loved it. The, <laughs> the movement of the storyline was so beautiful, beautifully placed and paced. Like even with the opening shot, that like drop down of you know, that what I later found out was fish. I had no idea. I was like, what in the world is that? What okay, is maybe going it's on? Like, yeah. So it was cool to be able to have the pacing, like sort of at what it, what it was. Um, I thought it was great. And all the guys were like, afterward, we were texting the group. We're like, whoa, this is gonna be so fun. I'm so excited to talk to her. So oh, we're, I'm so glad. we're grateful <laughs> you're here. So for sure. Likewise. How did you meet Denise? She's the subject, correct? That's her name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Denise, Denise Joy. Denise reached out to me about five years ago. And at the time, I was actually working at a different production company. I was an executive producer over there. I was living in Los Angeles. And I was primarily responsible for development and sales at the time. And I wasn't directing at all. Um, But she'd seen some films that I was involved with as an executive producer that I developed and typically would hand off or bring in the director who was best suited for the job. So she and I stayed in touch over the course of five years. And at the time where I felt like I was finally ready to bring her story full circle and act on what we'd been discussing, I had transitioned away from the company in Los Angeles, um, kind of stepped away from the commercial space altogether and stepped into a role of um, head of development at a company called Gnarly Bay based in Rhode Island, little company plug. And I'm their head of development there. And um, they gave me the freedom to direct because this particular story, because it is so nuanced and it, it comes from a, a background um, you know, of trauma, I, wa- I didn't want to hand this off. I wanted to do the due diligence and care, really care for the story and care for Denise. Uh, and by doing so, I, I wanted to direct it and play a more hands-on role. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. I was going to ask about the connection that you had to the story, like 
um, <clears throat> sounds like you had a friendship with her and then sort of just said, hey, I want to be in charge of this, if you will, and um, take care of the story, um, which is really cool. I think that's awesome. That's that's really what it came down to. It came down to being able to nurture her story and take time and finesse. I mean, a lot of these branded short films we do, they're turning around in two or three days. Mm. And that's because of budget constraints. Um, that's because of brand parameters when you're selling a project. They, they have very strict timelines. And I just knew with the subject matter, we weren't going to be able to operate um, within those barriers. That's awesome. I think that's kind of true to the subject matter, too, is like healing takes time, no matter how much time. And I think that that's cool that you were able to have the space for that. So I like that. It seems like the most or like the best the best ones are always come from a organic place. Like the fact that you you knew her, you had a relationship with her and then the story was there. It's like, I mean, I was. I'm always curious whether people have to go out and like find these stories because they want to make something epic or like, or or it just happened because you knew her or like, obviously there was intention behind it, but the fact that the story kind of came to you, I think makes it so much more special and just like, it has that organic strength to it. Mm -hmm. For sure. Totally. And in a way, it also adds this layer of responsibility Mm. and pressure because for someone to seek you out and put that sort of trust in a story that they've really not even shared with some of their closest friends or, you know, relatives, it's a it's a really big responsibility. I get I get chills talking about it because, you know, we screened the film this past week at Doc NYC, which is one of the biggest documentary festivals in the country. And. As much as I, you know, as a filmmaker, have this like absolute love, respect and admiration for Denise, I can only protect her so much. And once you open your story out up to the masses, there's going to be questions and, you know, potentially judgment. Um, And I can't control how people perceive this film and what will come of it. But I can control the intention I put into it and where we're willing to go from a storytelling perspective. Um, so as a filmmaker, it's a vulnerable place to be. Um, and, and I take so much pride in representing the subjects that I work with in a way that they want to be represented. But then from there, you're putting it out into the world. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. I'm curious, how long of the process, uh, or how long did you spend planning this shoot? So... I mean, I'm not going to lie. I tried to get this project funded up front. That's part of my my job. I'm head of development at a production company. So in an ideal world, you bring in the funds so that you can cover your bases and no one's out of pocket. Um, but what I found is after extensively canvassing the outdoor industry and the market, there wasn't um, there wasn't a willingness to attach brands to stories of trauma. And Mm -hmm. I think that's especially as it relates to sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, It seemed like there was a lot of tiptoeing. And so, and I knew there was so much value in sharing the story, even if it's just going to help one woman or one person Mm -hmm. on their journey. So Mm -hmm. Denise and I were both like, you know what, screw it. (laughs) Let's, let's Mm -hmm. just make this. And it's going to, going to be very non-conventional in the sense that you know, Gnarly Bay, we we have jobs and very strict timelines that we're having to 
adhere to and quick turnarounds that are client-based jobs. So between those those client jobs, my partner and I, who um, Chris Nam is a cinematographer on this particular piece, you know, we would be like, okay, we have a two-day window. Let's go drive down to Colorado Springs and we'll sleep in the back of the truck and we'll, we'll film wow. with Denise for two days. And then on top of that, you have these weather windows. So you're mm. waiting for the call from Denise. You know, it's looking great up at 14,000 feet. I have six hours where I feel like the airspace will be really good. Let's go. Wow. So it, I wouldn't say there's there wasn't a whole lot of like pre-planning. <laughs> it was more so, okay, now's our window of opportunity. Our shooting schedule is open and the airspace looks good. The one area I, that was the most tense from a planning perspective um, was getting our shot over and our, our helicopter locked in and our uh, camera operator for the shot over. We were able to work with an amazing operator named John Trapman. Um, he's done like some Batman films in the past. Yeah, he's like wow. best of the best. Cool. Total boss. Yeah. And he, he brought so much to this project. So that opening shot you saw, like that was all John yeah. and he's yeah. absolutely amazing. Um, but the reason I had such a hard time finding a helicopter was because when we were shooting this during the season where she's dropping the fish, it was, there were really bad wildfires in Colorado and all of the helicopters were fighting fire. So we have our window of opportunity and Denise is like, I'll be dropping fish in this amazing range. It will be, you know, in the Sangre de Cristo and the collegiate range. It's absolutely gorgeous. We can fly out of Salida airport. Um, and I was like, okay, let's do this. So I start, I was like four nights in a row, staying up past midnight, reaching out to pilots, um, you know, camera operators. We flew John in overnight, wow. finally found a, a pilot who was willing to take this job on. We found a helicopter and all the pieces lined up just in time. And it, and that was honestly like the, the, the cruxiest part of the whole shoot was just like getting that helicopter up in the sky and, do, and doing it in a safe way. Like I didn't want some amateur pilot who's going to put Denise at risk. Um, mm -mm. Yeah. So have you worked with... <laughs> helicopters in the past no i mean before i started directing i primarily worked in the ski industry so some of those films you know you were putting you were putting birds up in the air to get those shots but i had never gone up in a heli and like it's one thing to watch the footage and see what denise does but when you're like dropping in above her ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> i don't know about that like quickly you know dropping in elevation and coming back up and working yeah. around her it was like it was like a dance. It was so cool. And then you have these amazing jagged ridge lines that you're navigating around. I mean, the team we worked with is amazing, but my stomach was like in my throat. I don't know if that's even a term, but that's how it felt. Oh yeah. I, my heart rate just went up about <laughs> a lot. I'm it like, sounds Oh, so heights, extreme heights. and so exciting. <laughs> Speaking of the crew that you built out, what did that um, end up looking like? How did you I, you mentioned the the DP that you worked with um, is a partner. Yeah. So my partner's name is Chris Nam. Um, he's okay. a cinematographer and editor. So he shot and edited this piece. Okay. Um, and then we had a gentleman named Vince Nett, who's actually based out of the Front Range in Boulder, Colorado. And he ran second camera. So it was like three person, super nimble team. Majority of the shoot, it was just Chris and I. Um and, and then John Trapman, who was our uh, shot over camera op. And all that being said, I mean, the reason we wanted to keep this a super nimble crew, regardless of budget constraints, um, was just the, the intimate subject matter. 
and mm-hmm. not wanting to have like six people, you know, staring at Denise while she's having a very intimate, open conversation. Yeah. I mean, that's a, a testimony right there. The fact that you can pull off something like that with that many people to a lot of people are like, oh man, if I want to do that, I need so many people. It's going to be such a task, but no, you don't always need that many people. Sometimes you just need the right people. Um, and sounds yeah. like that's and people management. I, before I started directing, I would produce an EP. It takes so much time and brain space to manage people. <laughs> I'm like, I would rather, I'd rather produce and direct, you know, if the creative can, ha- can accommodate and just keep it a lean team. And it's kind of like a little bit more in my experience and um, opinion it's a little more magical in a way because you have this sort of like bonding thing between this small crew. Um, I tend to personally like a smaller cruise. Um, totally. You know, we talked about the planning process a little bit and you mentioned that it was like, you know, it was kind of there wasn't a ton. But at the same end of the spectrum, it sounds like you've been kind of potentially maybe planning this out in your brain for a while because it seemed like the conversations you have with Denise had um, you know, trailed all the way back to five years. Is that correct? Am I correct in assuming that? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we knew, we knew the story well before we started shooting, like visually it was in my brain. (laughs) I could see it. Um, and it was just a matter of getting our, our hours in really. Yeah. So did you do, did you make treatments? Like what did the, the process look like on paper? Because this wasn't a client facing job, Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't develop a director's treatment. I developed a, a shot list and a scene breakdown, and we would plug our scenes into the amount of time we had to shoot. So that was really the extent of it. Um, my interview questions. Interview questions, for me, like, story is number one. I think my partner would argue that visuals are number one, but that's why I think we make a great team. Um, so the interview Aside from getting that heli sorted, the interview was the part that I was most most anxious about. And I think that's always the case for anything in the documentary space. Um, you know, you, you want to work with your subject in a way that's uplifting and empowering. But from a story crafting perspective, there's certain places that you're eager to go. And it's such a fine line when you're shaping a story with someone, a story that is meant to work for someone to uplift and empower them, that your questions are not extractive, but are meeting them where they are and where they're ready to go. So I I explained this to Denise the other day when I sat across from her in that interview chair and I knew we were potentially going to like unearth some of these traumatic moments for her. I wanted to do it in a way that was very sensitive and very open without her feeling pressured. Like she had to perform for the camera or she had to live up to an expectation of what I wanted the film to be. And, and that's something we talked about from the very beginning. This is her story and she shares it from her perspective and what she's willing to share. Um, I have a really hard time in the documentary space when I see filmmakers attaching themselves to to the underdog story from a way that feels really extractive versus uplifting. So all that being said, I, you know, I was watching podcasts and listening to panels on like trauma informed storytelling and how to know when you're going too far, when you're potentially actually inflicting more harm than helping. Because anytime you bring up old trauma, that wound 
resurfaces and it's fresh and it can hurt just as bad as it did 10, 20, 30 years ago. So that was my biggest concern of this entire production. From, from my viewing experience, you can totally tell that there's like sensitivity and care behind it all. That's great. And we, I mean, we did rounds of revisions with Denise. She watched That's the cool. entire first rough cut. You know, there were areas where we reeled back because we thought maybe it was a little too much. Um, there's like the, the scene where she talks about envisioning herself flying and wanting to get away from it all. And initially we had this like really jarring flashback and she's like, that's not what it was like for me. It was actually a lot more peaceful and it was like a weight was lifted. So we had, we reworked the whole scene so that it was more visually in line with how it felt for her. Very cool. I wanted to talk to a, a little bit about Gnarly Bay. I know that, um, you work with Gnarly Bay. Amanda and I are both a part of a film, a video production company. Um, so I was just curious what your relationship is like with Gnarly Bay and what Gnarly Bay is about. Gnarly Bay is wonderful. <laughs> um, since Gnarly Bay, way before, baby. <laughs> hey, since way before I even got into film, they were always on my radar because they just they made really emotionally in touch films. And what struck me was at the time it was a, a bunch of guys who were extremely just emotionally intelligent. And like, <laughs> that's always what I look for in, in any relationships. I'm always the one at the, the party or at the bar who just goes like right into the deep zone. So I really appreciate that. <laughs> I, um, I appreciate the nuance in their films. Um, there's like an ethereal dreaminess to some of their work that I've appreciated. And, you know, after coming out of the commercial space, I think I grew a little bit disheartened. <laughs> Everything felt like a means to an end and felt a little caught up in the, the system and consumerism and wanted to kind of recalibrate. So they were the first partner I reached out to and I joined the team as their head of development. They're based out in Rhode Island. Um, and since I joined two years ago, we've actually developed um, Gnarly West, which is our Colorado branch. And a lot of our development efforts <laughs> take place out in Colorado in the Boulder area. Um, and we're about a team of 12. So cool. we've grown, we've grown since I've joined. Um, you know, we do everything from development, uh, creative services. We're actively pitching concepts. We have a slate of shorts that we're looking to attach either brand partners or publishing partners to um, pretty much at all times. We've got some uh, some features, some feature docs that we're looking to develop. So yeah, I play more on the development side of things, but we have a super robust post team, you know, sound, color, VFX in-house. A lot of our jobs are travel jobs. So, um, you know, we've been to Berlin and Austria this past year and I'm probably wow. forgetting some other ones. <laughs> I mean, full, full disclaimer, I know a lot about Gnarly Bay. I'm a big fan of Gnarly Bay. Been following the journey for a while now. So it was really exciting for me to to chat with you and, and also just hear a little bit about you guys because the work that Gnarly Bay puts out is incredible. Um, and I'm, I am, I think the team, our whole team here is very um, largely inspired by Gnarly Bay. So it's cool. I'm going to be honest. This is my first time hearing about them, but that doesn't mean I don't think their work is amazing. So <laughs> I'm here to learn. I'm here to learn. <laughs> Yeah, we've got three girls on the team now. It's uh, yes, we're up and coming. let's go. <laughs> we've got three too. Let's go, baby. <laughs> that being it. said, um, I thought it was. I was just curious to. I mean, I feel like I kind of know the answer, but I was curious uh, for our listeners. So it says at the end of the film, 
a film by Gnarly Bay or like uh, made by Gnarly Bay or something like that. Um, what does that, as the director, what does that mean to you? And what behind the scenes, what does that phrase mean? Mm. I mean, I'm honored to have a film by Gnarly Bay at the back end of my film. Um, first and foremost, um, from a standards of how you treat people and how you work with your subjects, Gnarly Bay is 100% in line with my values. And that was part of my decision uh, to come over to Gnarly Bay. They they respect people. They put people first, relationships first. They're not in it to make like the dopest, uh, highest profit Super Bowl commercial. And if they do they're going to treat people really well along the way. So it's an honor. Um, and I feel so, so, so supported. The first film I ever made with them within, you know, three months of joining the company, they, they got behind me. They got behind the idea of that, that particular film. And that was supporting, you know, um, the homelessness and housing crisis in Los Angeles. And that film is now recently Oscar qualified. So I feel very supported by this team and it's, it, you know, when, when you feel that, you want to reciprocate and you want to put that time and that work back into the company. So they're wonderful. Yeah, that's awesome. So it comes kind of from a place of like honor of like, I'm a part of this team, so I want to represent them. Therefore, the name lives here. That's cool. Yeah, totally. that's great. Yeah, so much respect. <laughs> I mean, they put all their internal resources behind fight or flight. So yeah, okay, cool. That's kind of what I was wondering yeah. too, if that's yeah. partly a, like a partnership in terms of equipment and all of that stuff. Totally. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, I saw that you produced and directed this. This is the, here she is, ladies and gentlemen. Um, <laughs> now I, I know you mentioned you were an executive producer for a while and you, ha your job now is still producing. Yeah. Is that correct? I'm heading all business development. So I'm, I'm our head of development. Um, I have a lot of, I have a background in sales development PR. One of the conversations we've had on this podcast, which I think is important is like, you know, I think a lot of young filmmakers, I did the same thing where I was like, oh, I have to be this person. I have to be the director. You know, everyone thinks they have to be a director, but actually sometimes their strong suits lie in other things. And maybe it does lie in directing. I'm not saying it, it can't, but... Um, yeah, if you like something else and your strength lies in development, great, you know, and, and if you like, and your strength lies in director, do, do it too. Um, but anyway, the question is, um, is this something that you want to, you know, continue doing a little bit more of the directing and producing, and then maybe a little bit of development as well too, or what's that look like? I think it's a balance. Um, I really, I love uplifting other filmmakers and other directors, and I do not think I am the best suited director for every story <laughs> that is out there. I know that for a fact. So I try to be very intentional about what stories um, I, I take on. And if it emotionally resonates with me or there's a connection point where I think I might have some insight um, or the subject matter is just near and dear then those are the stories I, I tend to go after from a directorial standpoint. You know, otherwise I'm really not interested in making a really expensive, cool commercial. That it sounds just... like some healthy <laughs> self-awareness. I like that. Yes. Yes. I love that. <laughs> the industry, it's interesting. It's inspiring as equally as it is nauseating. 
Oh, so I think knowing girl. what you don't want. Is JJ's really like, I'm so annoyed right now because I could go <laughs> off. I could go off. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You said commercialism and consumerism. I was like, ding, 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 ding. Like, right? I've got it's so, so many. It's thoughts. like, it can be so toxic. Oh. And it's like, you either feed the machine or you, you kind of like flip it on its head and, and work it to your advantage. I love that. <laughs> Dang. So good. I'm sure um, the tech side of things. Don't ask me any tech questions. <laughs> yes, okay. you are so me. You are me. I, I like my partner's on a shoot. Otherwise, I would call him in. But I, no. I'm like, <laughs> I'm I tell him what I want it to look like. Look like, and he shows me some <laughs> filtration and lenses, and I don't know. <laughs> okay, well, uh, we don't have to dive into that. Thank God. I can barely turn my TV on, let's be honest. (laughs) You honestly don't need to know. And that's like a good topic right there. The fact that you don't have to know as the director. And you've already spoken so much into how committed you are to the story and into like the relationship and knowing her. So that to me speaks clearly that, okay, her job as the director, she was Mm -hmm. focused on this. um, And that's a good thing i think i think that's probably why uh you get a lot of success in that you have someone that you can trust to take care of the technicalities and totally we align on the look you. and feel and then we're off to the races and i yes. the hope is i don't ever have to talk about or worry about it again Thank god oh my yeah. gosh but- <laughs> we're the same that's awesome so we know it was a nice camera you were in a helicopter that's all we need to know i do like the tech side of things so i'm gonna have to have a separate oh. call that's with, okay. Um, I'll connect you and you, you and Chris. You guys can Chris, yes. <laughs> talk your I'm gonna need to talk to Chris. Stuff. I need the answers from Chris, but we can Chris. move on. Where are you, Chris? <laughs> um, I actually have like kind of a fun question. You did mention you were in the helicopter, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Were you in the plane with her in the back too? Or was that Yeah, Chris? so we went up with her twice in the plane and then we did one in the helicopter or I went in the helicopter. Oh my gosh, how fun. How how fun was that? The plane was amazing. That thing like rattles like you're in a little tin can. <laughs> and it's like, oh. it's not a solid ride. Like you feel like... Mm. Is that a Cessna? It, yeah, uh-huh. I it's have a story scared. involving a Cessna. So maybe oh not Is that a type of plane? Sure. Yeah, that's the plane I was no, in. No, we don't want to get into that. <laughs> <laughs> I was in a plane crash. I survived. That's all we oh need to know. Oh my gosh. His Jeez. brother landed it well. That's all you can say. He did a good job. <laughs> oh, that's but so But isn't that scary? I'm like, I don't like that. That's I don't like that. It makes me so scared. Anyway, I think that's great that you were up there and how fun, but also I would have some serious fear going on. I'd be like very nervous. Were you nervous? Oh yeah. I mean, it just made me respect what Denise does so much more because you you are I mean, you feel very exposed. It's a tiny little plane. Um, and she just operates that with so much precision and she knows exactly what she's doing. Like she is so dialed. Um, and we were just along for the ride, really. Do people get to those lakes via land? This is just, yeah. So, so we actually hiked up to one of those lakes, um, and we waited there for her for like four hours. <laughs> um, and, and we came very early in the morning. We slept there the night before with all of our gear. And she needs to go early in the day um, to get her weather window before some of these um, systems blow in. And 
And she would circle a few times, and then she gave, she gave she'd give me a little wave where she'd like swing her um, wings side to side to let us know, okay, this next one I'm going to come around, I'm going to drop. So that was our way of communicating with one another before she would drop the fish. She'd oh, give wow. us a wave, we'd set up, and then she'd come in and drop. Wow. Yeah, I don't suppose she could. I don't suppose like cell phones would work. Right. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. amazing. I was curious about like how challenging it was to shoot in the back of that little plane. It was very tight. I mean, I was like leaning over the back of the seat. Um, Chris pretty much had like the butt of the camera in my face. <laughs> and, yeah. And I was just looking at his monitor. Um, Which and for camera takeoff, we'll never know. Well, we'll never know. Yeah. <laughs> we'll never know. <laughs> and for takeoff and landing, um, we had to secure the camera actually um, to the airplane because, you know, if something went wrong, we didn't want that rattling around in the plane. So diving into post-production, um, who had hands on this? What was the post-production crew? So Chris um, Chris did the final edit, Chris Nam, the cinematographer. And then we had Jared Blizzard, who's one of our in-house composers and editors, um, do a pass with sound effects um, and some of the score. I think we actually want to go back in and do a whole recomposition. Um, and there's a few few parts we want to make some adjustments to story-wise. So the version you saw is very much a work in progress. Um, if anything, we, we really wanted to get it out into the festival circuit just to start having those conversations with an audience and part of that was also like kind of a stepping stone for Denise to feel more comfortable sharing her story. So there will be a, a bit of a re-edit um, this winter, but again, a super, super minimal crew. Um, CJ Taglione is our head of post-production. He played an involved role with this. Um, I think we did color in-house. I have to revisit our credits, <laughs> um, but we, most of this was in-house with Gnarly Bay. How involved were you with the edit? Were you right there with them? Did you kind of deliver what you wanted and then step away? What did, what did that look like? Yeah, I had a full like scene structure story arc broken down. Um, and then what I do is I pull lines per scene. And typically, typically I'll have a whole paper edit that's the exact scenes I want. Um, I'll let Chris kind of do shot selection for his, for his own pride. Um, but like, I'll do the whole shot breakdown or scene breakdown and then pull the explicit lines I want at what point in the story. One thing that I noticed that I thought was unique about the edit um, that I wanted to ask about, there's moments where it cuts between the interview, um, which is in, uh, it's like four by five or four by three or something. And then it cuts to like widescreen. I was curious, um, about the choice around that? That was um, a suggestion suggestion from uh, the editor and cinematographer, Chris. And I love it because cutting in a little bit tighter on the interview, I think brings you into the moment with her, um, kind of gets rid of the periphery so that when we're in those wider expansive moments, particularly when we're in flight, you just feel immersed in the world. Um, so I think it had a lot to do, lot to do with like where the screen is drawing your eye and your focus and that narrow focus in on what she's saying versus sitting back, you know, relaxing your shoulders and being up in, up in the sky with her. Yeah. Both creatively, it just looks cool, but also like the fact that it has a purpose that it draws you into the character that gives it all the more, all the more reason. And yeah, it was a very, very cool decision. I guess as we 
begin to wrap the conversation up. Um, I'm curious uh, how the project has been received as you've put it out there. Has it been what you've hoped for? It's been received really well. Um, we, like I said, this this is a healing journey in progress. Um, so there's elements of the story that are very much still unfolding. There's potential interview questions that we may revisit. There's potential to re- reopen the edit um, and add in some scenes. But it's been very well received with audiences. Honestly, the, the success has almost been... Um, surprising in a way the fact that we all flew into new york last week and play premiered at doc nyc like the largest um documentary festival in the country was huge and we were there alongside you know academy award contenders for the oscars so that it's been incredible it's been a wonderful journey we were just on colorado public radio yesterday um i've started seeding the film with some grassroots organizations focused more on adverse childhood experiences um and trauma so you're on featuring kind of filmmakers oh my gosh <laughs> right like. on this podcast <laughs> no it's it's been amazing the response has been great we we're still looking for a home so distribution is a next step um you know there's been conversation of attaching some you know celebrity executive producers who've had uh, similar journeys. So it's, it's a work in progress still, even though the film is finished, you know, it's not publicly accessible. It's, it's making the festival circuit currently. You said you might open the, reopen the edit. And I thought, man, that's gotta be an interesting thing to, you know, have this relationship with someone that's like ever changing. And then also saying at some point, like, oh shoot, I think, I think this is good. Like we're just keep it where it is. But at the same time, wanting the story to be, you know, true to what it is now, I think that'd probably be a complicated place to live, correct? Totally. Totally. I mean, we could open up this edit every year <laughs> yeah. if we wanted it to be totally accurate to her healing journey, because that's an evolving, you know, it's an evolving process. So you're right. At some point, you know, we have to say this film is finished and it's on its way and this is a snapshot in time. Um, but there are some, there are some little adjustments we would like to, to make. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, that's awesome. I think that'd be a hard balance for sure. I'm curious about the uh, the film festival circuit and just what is your knowledge around that? I feel like that's an area that is very mysterious unless you've been in it and you know it and you've experienced it. Um, many people, probably many of people who would be listening to this podcast might not know how does one get involved in the film festival circuit. What, what's your knowledge on that? I would say if you're going to submit your film for festivals, I would go into it being very clear on what your goals are. Is this like a regional story? Are you wanting to target um, a specific region? Um, or is there a call to action that's really important to you? If so, there's festivals that are probably more siloed based on subject matter. Um, or is your goal in a, you know, an Oscar run? In, in that case, just apply to those Oscar qualifying festivals. And maybe you don't go to the Tribeca Sundance South by Southwest of the world, but you go to some of the smaller, uh, entry level options. Um, I think it is always in your favor to get a direct line of communication with a programmer and try to get an understanding of what programmers might have, uh, an interest in your subject matter, just as if you were, you know, it's market research, like figure out who is going to be watching your film and making that decision and make sure that you're hand delivering your film to them. If you can, if you can find their contact information. Um, 
and use those festivals as a networking opportunity, even though, you know, it's daunting. And a lot of the times, by the time your film screens, you're exhausted. Um, stick to water. It's never in anyone's favor to be the sloppy person on stage um, presenting your film. And Why do I feel like this is coming from experience? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I worked in the ski industry and I started presenting films in the ski industry. So there is um, a bit of a transformation that takes place. <laughs> yeah, sure. You can easily blow a lot of money on festival submission fees. So get in touch with the folks who are programming and see if they have a waiver code. Otherwise, you're just going to spend like 100 bucks, 50 bucks here and there. And it's not really worth it. <laughs> so just thinking about the experience as a whole... Um, obviously it's still moving, but, um, is there anything you, you would do if, like, if you could go back, is there anything you might do differently? Mm. I, I would have loved to spend more time looking for grants, um, or private donors who were explicitly interested in the subject matter, because having those funds up front would have helped us just allocate more resources and time rather than consolidating to this, you know, four, four day shoot window. I feel like finding a private donor is like looking for a needle in a haystack. Like totally. I mean, this particular film, we have a fiscal sponsor. So if someone decided they did want to donate, um, to the impact campaign, which is us essentially seeding the film with grassroots organizations who are involved in this subject area, if someone wanted to get involved, they could go donate. Um, we're up on the Film Collaborative, which is a fiscal sponsor of ours. So they could get a nice tax write-off. <laughs> um, <laughs> very much still looking <laughs> for involvement. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, it's one thing to make a film. It's another thing. If it can actually impact and, and change lives, like that is just as important for us. So that's kind of where we're at in our process now. Yeah, I um, as we're finishing up here too, that is one thing we wanted to ask is just how can we support you moving forward? How can the filmmaking community support you? And um, that that's one area, obviously. Um, besides that, do you have plans for future projects um, that we should keep an eye out for? Or what's next for, for Lindsay? For this particular film, um, if you run a festival or want to host a screening or you know any impact groups that are affiliated with adverse childhood experiences or trauma healing, get in touch with me. I'd love to share a link of the film with you. Um, we're really trying to drive conversation um, and, and support change in the healing process. So for fight or flight, those are kind of our core goals. Um, Coming up next for me, I have um, a film called After Skid Row that is Oscar qualified. So that's in the Academy voting portal as of today. Uh, thank you. Oh <laughs> my doing, gosh, that's amazing. I, I'm thrilled. It was a total surprise. But again, total passion project. So we don't have the, the buku bucks to support, um, you know, a, a publicist and a full PR Oscar run because those are quite costly. Yeah. Uh, so yep. we're just doing uh -huh. like full, full, full gorilla style. So you'll see. You'll see me, um, you know, sharing the film and posting uh, for awesome. your consideration on Instagram cool. here shortly. Yeah. What's it? What's that one called? After Skid Row. Okay. Is that out? Can we watch that somewhere? It is. It's it's on it's on Vimeo, and then it was acquired by the LA Times. They just launched a new Opdocs channel. So Dang. nice. That's great. Let's go! Come on, girl. How do how do people find you on Instagram? What's your handle? I am L I N Z E. 
last question. We always ask guests if there's somebody that they're inspired by who they would like to hear uh, or a project that they would like to hear discussed on the podcast. Is there someone or a project that you would love to listen to? Yes. There's a filmmaker I did a through hike with many years ago in New Zealand who has been working on this project, this doc- feature documentary for years. Uh, it's called The Quiet Epidemic. His name is Winslow Murdoch. Um, Ooh, just I like that doc- name. He was Winslow Murdoch. It's an epic name. Um, but him and his partner, Cecilia, um, they're both just amazing storytellers and both launching their career. But I, I can tell they're they're going to be up for an academy any day now. <laughs> they're cool. very, very talented. So I, yeah, I'd highly recommend Winslow and his partner, Cecilia. Winslow, what a solid name. <laughs> My gosh, I love that. Thank you, Lindsay, for being on. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and learned a lot myself. So thanks for taking mm-hmm. the time to chat with us. Congrats mm-hmm. on all the successes and just on making something that is really freaking good. Yeah, agreed. And thanks excited so to see what you come up with next. Mm-hmm. I appreciate the time. Thank you both. It was so great to meet you. Featuring Filmmakers is made possible by Harvest Film Company. To dive into content about these projects that we discuss, you can go to our blog on featuringfilmmakers.com where we have everything laid out with behind the scenes, the original project discussed, and additional episodes there. So check us out at featuringfilmmakers.com. Thanks so much for listening. Love you. Bye.